Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. There are few eras in church history that are heavier than the 30 years war of Germany in the early 17th century. The nation was a battleground for power as war broke out, while at the same time it was struck by famine, while also being exasperated by a plague. So war, famine, and plague all descending on the same place at the same time. It's estimated that up to half of the population of Germany died as a result. And amidst this darkness, a gospel light named Martin Rinkhart pastored a little church in a town called Eilenburg, which is in Saxony. There he served most of his career helping shepherd the people of God through one of the most unimaginable times. The most crushing year was the Great Plague of 1637, where Rankart had to officiate funerals of two of his fellow clergymen while watching two others abandon ship and leave their post under the pressure and weight of ministry in that place, leaving Rinkart the only pastor in the place. At times, he was called to officiate the funerals of 50 people a day. Refugees were buried in trenches without their families gathered or a funeral service. Rinkart had to bury his own wife. And in the thick darkness of war and plague and famine, Rinkhart wrote a hymn that is like a lantern held out, both for his own soul to follow the light of, as well as the people that he loved. Surprisingly, it's not a song of lament like we just sang. Rather, it's a hymn of thanksgiving. It's entitled, Now Thank We All Our God. It was written originally in German, translated to English. Some of you may have sung it in the past. I'd like to read the first two verses. And I want to invite you to listen to the hope that is resonant in these hymn lyrics. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom his world rejoices who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and how they would have needed cheering. To keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills of this world in the next. How do you sing a hymn of praise and thanksgiving and hope in God underneath such a heavy burden? You trust that your life is in God's hand even when you cannot see it. As we opened our study of Exodus last week, things looked so vibrant. Obviously, the tone of today is a totally different direction. Those first seven verses are brimming with blessing and optimism. And now with the turning of one verse, things change from a season of multiplied blessing to multiplied sorrows. 
in time, we're going to see God rescue his people out of the house of slavery, is what Exodus 13.3 says. How? By carrying them on eagles' wings, bringing his people to himself, like Exodus 19.4 says. And those are wonderful images that await us in the future. But not today. Today, Moses wants us to see the desperate condition of God's people before redemption was given. The scene of Exodus 1, 8 through 22, is one of the heaviest pages in God's story of redemption. It contains a mixture of devastating burdens that is uh, also contain witness of covenantal blessing. And in the dark night of these verses, if we look carefully, we'll see on the horizon the promise of God dawning. That day's coming, but not yet. So I've organized uh, our passage around three plagues. That word will become very important in a number of weeks. Three plagues that Pharaoh sends on the people of God. And they create this burden too heavy to bear. But we will see the Lord bear up his people. I've tried to hold this tension in the divisions of our text between God's faithfulness and the suffering. And so here's what I've outlined. First, we will look at burden and blessing, verses 8 through 14. Next, murder and multiplication, verses 15 through 21. And finally, ruthlessness and redemption, verse 22. So, with our course set, let me invite you to stand your feet as we read from God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one who, who was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the Egypt king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. 
And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Would you please be seated? All right. In the first plague that Pharaoh sends on the people of God, there is burden and blessing. As the scene opens on verse 8, the season of peace and prosperity for God's people living in the land of Egypt comes to an end. A new Pharaoh is now in charge, who Scripture tells us did not know Joseph. That means literally he could not know him, or he didn't care to know the agreement that had been made uh, in the past. So we learned last week that Exodus uh, begins with the word what? And. And. And that word links the book of Genesis with the book of Exodus. Moses is pointing back to the story of Genesis as he begins to write the story of God's redemption. Well, here with the mention of Joseph, Moses has placed another verbal cue meant to draw our thoughts back to how the Israelites even ended up in Egypt to begin with. How did the people of God end up out of their land living in Egypt? Well, the story of Joseph is written in Genesis 38 through 50. Many years earlier, the sons of Jacob, those 12 tribes that we read of last week, hated their brother Joseph so much, they sold him into slavery, and then they told their dad he tragically died. Do you remember who they sold them to? Who did they sell them to? The Egyptians. Well, hang on to that. That's going to become very important. In the course of time, Joseph went from being a slave to being the prince of Egypt. Well, eventually, a famine struck Canaan, and Joseph's brothers are forced to go to Egypt to find food. And when they go to look for food, they're standing in front of none other than their brother, who they sold into slavery. They were likely convinced that he was now dead. Joseph doesn't hold it against them, but forgives his brothers. He reconciles with them. He rescues them from starvation. He's reunited with his father. And then the whole family moves to Egypt where they have protection, provision. They're given the best part of the land in Gershom. It's almost like Canaan, but in a different place. Surely they'll live here happily ever after, right? Well, no. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, concludes the story of Joseph as he says that you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's what verses 1 through 7 are summarizing and what 8 is the exclamation point of. That's what's happening. But the favor of Pharaoh is no more. This new Pharaoh is paranoid that the Hebrews have become too numerous for the Egyptians to control. Verse 12 says that the Egyptians were in dread. Why? Because if an enemy came and tried to conquer them, Pharaoh was terrified that the, the Hebrews might side with their enemy and fight against the Egyptians. If that happened, they would lose their entire workforce. 
Their riches would be ravaged. Their power would be plundered. And so he forces them to become slaves. The word there is servant. Like we would say a servant, a worshiper of God. He turns them into servants of Pharaoh. Moses summarizes this new miserable experience of slavery in verses 11 through 14. The Egyptians placed cruel taskmasters over the Hebrews, assigning them to hard labor, roles in construction and farming, dividing them into labor groups. And they're ordered to build these great supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, where the military would store all of their weapons of warfare and provision and food for the nation. And though these verses are brief, it wasn't to the people of God. There would be centuries, generations who, bore, who were born and died under the slavery of Egypt. And this is where it started. Uh, think about this first generation Though it's brief, Moses wants us to feel the gravity of this moment in history. Imagine living your entire life in freedom and then being forced to live as a slave. Think about how frightening it would be to know that you, you are not a person of your own, but you are owned by another, by this Pharaoh. How difficult it would be having to work for the Egyptians a cruel, hard job than to have to come home and still try to make a way for your own family. By the way, your entire family now also belongs to Pharaoh. Your husband, your wife, your children no longer are yours, but they belong to a king. In all their work, Scripture says, they worked them ruthlessly, making their lives bitter. This is why at Passover celebration each year, uh, Jews and Christians alike remember the history of our people and, uh, and take these bitter herbs into our mouth to remember the bitterness of these years of slavery. Well, Pharaoh intended to make the Hebrews' lives so hard that they would not want to have children. Why would you want to bring children into this world where they'll be born into slaves? Or maybe work them so hard they're exhausted and couldn't even think of starting families and having children. If that happened, then Pharaoh would regain his confidence that he was in control over the people, that he was God. So in this darkness, there is a, there's a little ray of light here. And um, if, if we move too fast, we won't see it. This a uh, wonderful little section contains this position of, of divine reversal. I want to make sure that you're ready for this. Um, so one commentator said that as the book of Exodus would be read out loud, that this would be the part of the story where the people of God, as they hear uh, the situation at hand and the foolishness of it, and then the plan of God that's greater than that, that they would break out into cheering and clapping. Well... I don't want to be outdone by someone from the past. Have you brought your cheering and clapping to church this morning? Have you? Okay, here we go. So let's just think of what this might feel like. I'm, I'm going to read these verses actually out loud. And when we get to verse 12 there, we're going to bring down the house. 
Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. There's a little humorous pun there in the Hebrew that uh, mean to magnify the greatness of our God and show the foolishness of the wisdom of men. More on that in a moment. Imagine you'd never heard the story of Scripture before. After reading through the book of Genesis, you saw how God formed for himself a people. Then with the opening verses of Exodus, you might be led to think that from here on out, the Bible must be a story of just God's people being continually blessed until they're you know, called home. And in a way, it is, but not without the continual um, presence of sin and struggle with every step until the last page of the book. Scripture tells us that in a world that loves the darkness and hates the light, that the children of light will be hated. And still, we can trust in God's word that he will be with us. Even this week, with fresh eyes, we look at the persecuted church. I'm so grateful for the opportunity that we had to pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan this morning who are facing renewed mounting pressure to be the people of God there. I received an email from a friend in Dubai this week telling of stories of God's faithfulness in the midst of it. I can't wait for us to talk about that more in the days to come. But we, as the people of God, know these pressures, even from our culture, this mounting pressure against the teaching of Scripture. What do we do when we feel that bearing down on us? Well, we do not lose heart, standing firm by faith in the God who saved us. Like Moses said these years ago, the more the powers of hell try to keep us from multiplying, the more we multiply. That's what the book says. So in this first plague, we see both burden and blessing. In the second plague, Pharaoh sent to the Israelites, we see both murder and multiplication. Similar things, similar outcome. Pharaoh is frustrated that his plan to slow down the Hebrew population hasn't worked. And so in his maniacal mind, he comes up with a solution. He privately instructs these two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, to kill any son born during the birthing process. That noun, son, is not just a boy, but meant to be near, a son that would be killed. This is a subversive method. It's not too public. Pharaoh hopes that with less Hebrew men around, that he will feel more confident in his own political control. We might stop and act, ask, why, why murder just the boys and, and not both the boys and the girls, the sons and daughters? Um, Old Testament scholar from Southern Seminary named Dwayne Garrett uh, identifies a few reasons. 
He said, first, Pharaoh was primarily concerned with eliminating future warriors who might revolt against him. So how do you stop an ensuing army? Just wipe them out from birth. He didn't want these little Hebrew kids growing up in slavery to then revolt against the powers that held them captive. Second, he probably identified the race of a child with the race of the father, not the mother. So if there were no Hebrew fathers, there would be no Hebrew children. And then third, he may have supposed that in the absence of Hebrew boys, Hebrew warriors, that these girls would eventually be sold off into Egyptian families to serve as domestic slaves and that the Hebrew race would eventually melt away. How many times have we seen that repeated through history as late as the 20th century? So that's the plan. Once again, this second scheme of Pharaoh backfires in his own stinking face. He's outwitted, outsmarted by two courageous midwives. I love these women. He'd ordered these ladies to do an unthinkable thing, asking midwives whose life ambition is to help mothers uh, through the most precious moment of life, right? Giving birth to a little one. And he's asking these women whose, whose desire is to help serve these ladies and these precious children to instead to abort them. This would be like asking doctors who have taken the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm to people. The mandate that they bring harm to people. What are these ladies to do in this situation? Well, they quietly disobey this direct order. And then after some time, Pharaoh realizes things don't seem to be improving. I see these little three, four-year-old Hebrew boys in the streets playing American football. <laughs> and and uh, it's not working. What's happening here? That's the question in his mind. What's happening? So he calls these two ladies to report on what's going on. And they explained to him that these Hebrew women are so vigorous in childbirth. By the time they get there, these baby born, these babies are cooing and coddling already. Um, it's not the main point, but it is a point. There's this wonderful little uh, reversal. The Egyptians who think they're so mighty over everyone, these Hebrew women saying, actually, these Hebrew women are more vigorous in childbirth. We can get to the Egyptian women. It's the Hebrew ladies we can't get to. They're so fast, so furious in childbirth. And here we begin to see the wisdom of Pharaoh buckle under the wisdom of God. It's a little foretaste of what is to come as Scripture shows us what Pharaoh meant for evil, God will mean for good. These mighty women feared God. Their relationship to him was one of devotion and obedience. One scholar said uh, that their act was a confession of faith. You might ask, well, they, they lied, and then God seems to bless them. Is that how this works? This is, this is not how that works. This is a descriptive passage of how God rescued his people through these women lying. Same thing we see with Rahab, who hides the spies. Same thing we see through the reign of Hitler with people hiding Jews in their homes or in America as slaves were hidden in 
the home and underground to the glory of God, lying to a uh, godless culture. Same thing. Pharaoh had not taken into consideration the fact that the women he was dealing with had a greater loyalty to a greater king. It's fascinating to note that uh, the names of these two lowly, brave, servant-hearted, God-fearing women are forever written down in the Word of God, while the name of this Pharaoh is never even whispered once. The nameless Pharaoh, the named, courageous, God-fearing women. You know, Pharaohs wanted their names and legacies to be remembered. They built pyramids so that we would not forget them, yet the only names listed are these valiant women who feared God and saved lives. And don't miss the result of the second plague. The people multiplied and grew very strong. Now, where have we heard those words before? Back in the time of blessing. Chapter 1, verse 7. Look at it with me. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That word filled means swarming. Moses uses that same word in Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit was swarming, he says, over the face of the deep. We'll see them later in the book of Exodus as locusts swarm through the land. It's filled with the people of God. This is what he's after. A people for his own possession that would worship him. So what comfort is there in this mention of swarming, multiplication? Well, that God will keep his word. That God will gather his people to himself until the church of God be saved to sin no more. I thought about the song I, I sang as a kid, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. One lesson we might take away from these God-fearing women is to be ourselves a people who fear the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. We looked at this last week. Paul told us these things happened to them as an example but were written down for our instruction. So the, uh, these exemplary women's lives instruct us how to walk in the fear of the Lord. That doesn't mean we cower before Him. It means we, we revere Him as holy and other with reverence, with wonder, with worship. Our lives oriented around God and His greatness. Even with school starting this week, I've got you know, four little kids. They're about to have a lot of info dumped in their little craniums. And before that first day, we sat down and opened Proverbs 1, which tells us where wisdom begins, where instruction starts with the fear of the Lord. And so I've been praying that the men and women and children of our church would be people marked with the fear of the Lord. That we would walk in obedience to his word, standing boldly for the Lord, even when there is great cost. By his grace, he will sustain us. 
that we would fear the Lord rather than the fear of the future. Because that's the fear that our world cultivates, the fear of the unknown, the fear of the future. We have a better thing to fear. The God who is full of love, the one who holds this world in the hollow of his hand. Christian, one day, our enemy will be thrown into the lake of fire and remembered no more. But your name is written on the palm of your Savior. Every scheme of the enemy one day will be no more. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life with ink that will never fade. So you who fear the Lord and love his son Jesus and are um, indwelt by his spirit, you will never be forgotten by God. Murder and multiplication. The final verse contains ruthlessness and sets the scene for redemption. In verse 22, we see that all of Egypt was recruited to destroy the population of their enemy, Israel. This is the ultimate scheme. This is the third plague of Pharaoh against the Israelites. The plan that he had devised to wear down the people by slavery had not worked. His failed plan to kill the sons of Israel just irritated his agenda further. Now he decides to involve the whole nation in on the genocide of Israel. His edict? To throw every Hebrew baby boy into the Nile River so that they would drown. Well, the Nile would have been a convenient way to dispose of the blood on his hands as it carried downstream the evidence out of sight, never to be thought of again. The Nile was also viewed by the Egyptians as a god. We'll look at this more in the coming weeks of how God basically tears down the idolatry of the Egyptians. For today, let, it, let us just understand that the Nile was seen as the giver and taker of life. It, it was how the Egyptians lived, was being fed and sourced by the Nile itself. And so the Egyptians may have been thinking that they're just doing the will of the gods or this man called God known as Pharaoh as they sacrificed the lives of these little ones. I... Uh, one morning, I, I told Jamie, I, I came to the verse 22 one morning reading this this week, and I was just sat in tears thinking about how horrendous this must have been. Just imagine Egyptian soldiers ripping through Hebrew settlements looking for baby boys and the agony of having sons ripped from the arms of their mother. Fathers overpowered by Egyptian spears. Think of having to work by the Nile and seeing this little sign float down the river while you work, this evidence of Pharaoh's in charge here. And the heartbreak that must have filled God's people. Deliver us, deliver us. 
repentance is gruesome, it's barbaric, it is demonic. And that's what Moses wants us to see. Um, Egyptian pharaohs in this time wore elaborate crowns. And on their golden crowns, above their head was the image of a serpent, which is what they worshipped. It showed a demonstration of their power. And in that, we see this hint back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where um, the gospel is first whispered in the Bible. The day will come where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And here the serpent hisses and flexes against the seed of the woman. Chapter 1 does not end with really even the hint of a redemption. Simply the story of God's people in slavery with their neck pushed against the ground by the seed of this serpent, oppressed and attacked by an enemy too great to defeat. But it is in the weakness of God's people that he will soon demonstrate his strength. And right now in our story, we're not going to see that today, but we know that redemption. We know that deliverance. This is the story, this is the scene that points to a great condition and a greater redemption. This act of old is also mirrored in the New Testament. Another man named Herod, an evil, ruthless ruler in fear of his throne being taken over by the promised Messiah, the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, he orders all infants two years and younger to be killed so that they might not rise up against him. And so at the end of a chapter filled with clouds of suffering, let us not miss the light that breaks through the canopy. So what is the message of Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22? It's a scene that shows us how serious and dire the condition of God's people was that ultimately points to how serious and dire our own condition is. A state of spiritual slavery. A state of, before Jesus, dead in our trespasses, needing to be set free a burden too heavy to bear. We are born spiritual slaves to sin in desperate need for a redeemer. The book of Exodus points to the great Exodus or the going out for all who are in Christ who through his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection have been brought out of our spiritual slavery into freedom so that we might be worshipers of Jesus. Slaves to God, which is a burden so light. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. We're the people who've been brought out of the house of slavery 
as God has carried us on eagles' wings, brought us to himself, Exodus 13 and 19. What wonderful images. But not yet. Today, God shows us the need for deliverance, the need for redemption. So I must say to you, if you're our guest and you have not yet trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you're still chained in your sin, even dead in your sin. But we worship a God who, uh, with whom death is not the end. And so the arms of Christ are wide open to you this morning. Repent of your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus. He will set you free. There's hundreds of testimonies in this room where that is our story. And it can be yours as well. So praise the Lord. Even for the dark pages of Scripture. Praise the Lord for women like Shifra and Puah. And to the faithful of every age who suffer and fear the Lord, who stand bold to earthly powers, trusting in the greater power that we know. And thank the Lord for all who stand in the darkness and hold out the light like a lantern of God's truth for us to walk in. We started by looking at Martin Rinkert's hymn, Now Think We All Are God. And I just want to conclude our time by reading where that hymn finishes. All praise and thanks to God, the Father now be given, the Son and Spirit blessed, who reign in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom heaven and earth adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. Even in time of plague and war and famine and sickness and oppression, come what may, may we sing all praise and thanks to God, who was, who is, and shall be evermore. Under this burden too heavy to bear, Christ will bear us up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that every word that you have spoken to us is meant to make yourself known. So I thank you for speaking through the pages of your word this morning. Let us be a people who know you, who remember what it was like to be bound in spiritual slavery and who have now been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ that was spilled on our behalf. Let us look back and remember the bitterness that sin creates and look to the cross and the freedom that Christ gives. May we be a people who, in the burdens of this world, rejoice in your blessing. May we see your church multiply amid oppression and persecution. And may we rejoice in the redemption that Christ has won for us. We pray in his name. Amen.